Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 13. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the servant, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Um, one of the challenges with Genesis 3 is that no matter what your experience often of church is this is an incredibly familiar passage. Maybe not all the details, but the, the kind of broad story. And so it's sometimes hard to come to this and understand where it's driving because we might feel so familiar with it. So just a, a little bit of a, a, a quick introduction just to get a sense of where the question and the problem that Genesis is trying to, uh, trying to unpack. Um, I'm not sure if you've had this feeling, but it is so incredibly debilitating seeing the symptoms of a problem and not knowing what the problem itself is. About eight years ago, I started having kind of abdominal pain. Didn't know what it was, just thought I'm probably just eating too much steak uh, and not doing any exercise, which both of which were true. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'll cut down a steak. Only steak six days a week, um, <laughs> not seven. And I'll walk, I'll walk from the kitchen to my study more than three times a day. Uh, that was the problem. Anyway, the abdominal pain kept going. Went to the doctor, he said, you're fine, just cut back on this stuff, you will be right. It got worse and worse and worse. Eventually, it started moving my back. I thought, maybe it's my back. And so I got one of those chairs, which are the balls. You know, the balls at the back, and you know, they're supposed to be good for your posture and everything like that. Didn't help at all. Often, I would spend the afternoons at work in the office that I worked lying on the floor in agony with my colleagues just stepping over me. Uh, that's Derek again, you know, what's he doing? Uh, the doctor said, you know, I can't see anything, nothing. It got to the point where often I would wake up at two in the morning in such pain that uh, I would have to go and have a bath, an incredibly hot bath, just to take my mind off the pain. And I wasn't sleeping at all. It's terrible. Um, eventually, after the doctor saying effectively to me, just suck it up, princess, a number of times, I was talking to my mother-in-law and she said, you know what, it sounds like you've got a problem with your gallbladder. 
And then I looked it up on Google because that's the thing you should always do when you have problems. I looked it up on Google and Google said, no, no, generally people with gallbladder problems are in their 40s and this was when I wasn't in my 40s. Generally they're female and I was pretty sure I wasn't female and generally overweight. Now that one was true, the overweight one was true for me. So I went to the doctor and when he said there's nothing wrong, I said, maybe it's my gallbladder. And he said, it's not, but I'll send you off for a test. Guess what? Thank you, my mother-in-law. It was my gallbladder. Now I could have gone on for years, that was 12 months. I could have gone on for years, not knowing what the problem is. All the symptoms, not knowing what the problem is. It is so incredibly debilitating when that's the case. So incredibly debilitating. Now, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is trying to get to the heart of what the problem is in the world. Right at the start of the Bible, what are the, the symptoms we see in our lives and in the world? What is the cause of it? If Genesis 1 and 2 tells us of the beauty and the creation of the world and the fact that God created all things out of nothing by his word and it was beautiful and at the pinnacle of that creation was this thing called mankind, man and woman together in a perfect relationship with God. Well then Genesis 3 picks that story up and it starts to tell us what the cause of those problems in the world are. Particularly in our own lives. And in Genesis 3, the problem that we see here is not the eating of fruit. That is just the symptom. There's something much deeper going on in Genesis 3 that we need to unpack and that Genesis 3 wants to draw our attention to as we read it. So with me, see this with fresh eyes. Let's go through it again with fresh eyes. The start of the Genesis 3, if you've got it, look on your phone if you don't have a Bible, biblegateway.com, have a look at Genesis 3. Just flick back one verse to Genesis chapter 2.25 and there's a tension in here because in Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Here is a picture of perfection. Everyone's standing tall in their birthday suits. God's there, no shame at all. But chapter 3 verse 1 introduces this sinister plot into, into a garden of perfection. Adam, uh, 2.25 tells us Adam and Eve were nude, but the Hebrew in he, chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that the serpent was shrewd. We should hear in the background of this story, this is a moment in movies where you, hit, you hear that music building. You think something is going to happen. The evil person is approaching, approaching here. And the question is, what's going to happen when he arrives? What is going to drive a wedge between Genesis 1 and 2 and, and the Creator and in Genesis 3, his creation? Well, it's a, it's a three-step process that we see here. Here is the first step, verses 1 and 2. Eve distances herself from God. That's the first step. Eve distances herself from God. Not with a big bang. It's just done with a whisper. That's what it's done with. Not a vile act. Just a question, that's how it begins. A tangent that, that Eve sets the direction of a relationship on. Now notice the question and see the reaction here. The serpent here in Genesis 3, this anti-God figure, asks the question, verse 1, did God really say? Did God really say? Now understand the tone of this question. This is not a genuine inquiry. Hi Eve, how are you doing today? Things well? It seems strange that you keep avoiding that tree over there. What's happening? No, that's not the, that's not the way the question was intended. This is a sneer disguised as a question. Did God really say? Did God really say? Are you telling me 
that God has allowed you access to everything in creation except that one tree right there. It feels petty. It feels ridiculous even. Why that one tree? Now, just notice here. The first step that sets Eve and the whole of creation on a tangent away from God is not rational thinking. It's not logic. It's not science. It is just an idea that is lodged in the heart that makes Eve in Genesis 3 doubt that her creator could be good and loving and kind. In fact, he's holding something back from her. That's the seed of doubt that's planted right here. Now see the reaction that it has on Eve here. Because up to this point in Genesis, God has always been referred to as Lord God. If you've got um, a Bible, you'll see that often in capital letters, Yahweh Elohim, personal name of God in here, intimate reference. And when you get to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 1, there's no intimacy here. That is, did God really say, did that distant, remote creator, that uncaring dictator, really say to you that you couldn't have that tree? And notice how Eve responds. You can see her beginning to doubt God's goodness, beginning to doubt God's motivations for this. She imitates the serpent. She said, well, God said. I had one of my friends talking about this passage and he said, you know there's a problem in your relationship with your kids when they start referring to you as Mr. Hannah. That'd be odd, wouldn't it? If any of my kids, I've got three boys, if any of them called me Mr. Hannah, two options. One, they're being a smart aleck, which is a very good option. That's generally true. Two is there is a serious rupture in our relationship. I don't know. I'd be saying, that's not what you call me. You call me Dad. Now, you can see this turning over in Eve's mind. She's beginning to doubt. It's seen how she talks about God and his commands. There's, there's distance here in the relationship. There's elaboration. And in that elaboration, you can hear her trying to work out what God's motives are. Verse 2 and 3. Well, I suppose Mr. God did say that we can have any fruit except that one right in the middle that looks so good there. He told us not to eat it. In fact, he told us not to even touch it. He didn't say that. Or we die. Yeah, you're right, that does seem a bit extreme. It does seem a bit odd. I wonder why God would deny me something that's good. I already put that right in front of me and then tell me I can't have it. You ever thought that before? Why would God put that right in front of me and then tell me I can't have it? It just seems wrong, it seems evil. Can you see in Genesis 3 here, the, the, the very first step as the Bible talks about sin, it describes it in lots of ways. And this is just one, but the, the first way it presents this idea of sin is distance from God, a doubting of his goodness, to see him as someone who isn't so much interested in, in your good than in his own and in his own arbitrary rules that he sets up. Well, here's what's happened, what's happened next. Eve, well, she begins to look at things that bring death as if... They bring life. She begins to look at things that bring death, death as if they bring life. Verse 4. You won't surely die, the serpent said to the woman. He picks up 
this response to Eve. And he's saying, look, God is just overstating the case here. God's got his own agenda. His agenda doesn't include your good. If it does, it's way down on the pecking order. He is not telling you everything. You'll be more free and you'll be more happy if you just eat it. God wants you subjugated. He wants to keep you ignorant. He knows that if you eat that fruit from that one tree that he has said, you will, verse 5, be like him. Which interestingly is exactly what in chapter 3, verse 22, God confirms. What the serpent says here is technically right. Technically right. And you see Eve's response. This new insight that God is holding something good back from her, she looks at that, that tree in the middle of the garden that whereas before she would have looked at it and seen death, now in verse 6, see how she sees it. She looks at the tree and she sees it's good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable in gaining wisdom. Her perspective about this has changed because of her distance from God, how she sees God here. She starts to see things that bring death as if they bring life. Now, imagine that. Imagine that. It seems far-fetched, doesn't it? It does. I was thinking that the other day as I was down at McDonald's eating a quarter pounder, uh, double, large actually, double quarter pounder, and I ordered an extra cheeseburger on the side. And I got a free large chips for $1 that day. I was eating, as if we could ever think of things that bring, life, bring death would bring life. I was also thinking about it the other day as I was walking past a hospital and I saw people standing outside with gas masks on and IV drips in, pulling the gas mask off and smoking. I understand that pain. I understand what it's like to see things that bring death as if they bring life. And this is the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3. Independence from God. He's saying it will make you more than you are if you just separate yourself from him. Not less, more than you are. See, if God's, Mr. God's motivations are not with my good at heart, maybe he feels threatened because of who I am or who I'll be if I am free. I won't need him anymore. Then I start to see everything that he says in a whole new light. Those rules are no longer for my good. They are for keeping me in check. They're for controlling me. Now, this is predominantly how people view God including me, quite often. And I think one of the touchstones, particularly for our culture, and not just our culture, actually, most cultures throughout history has been, sex is often a prime example of exactly this. It makes no sense for our culture, for the Bible to say that, that sex is between one man and one woman to death of their part. Now, we live in a fallen world, this is complex, but why is it that God would say something which would seem so ill-fitting with how it is that we live. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Mr. God would prefer that I suffer for no apparent reason rather than hear what he says on this topic and so many other topics. Now, do you see, just as you unpack Genesis 3, how God is viewed here? He's viewed as distant and uncaring. He's out of touch. He doesn't understand how the world works. He is not a loving creator. I couldn't believe in a God like that, let alone follow a God like that. And Eve gets to exactly that point. That's where she lands, exactly that point. Because she's held God at a distance. She's seen God as some joy-denying dictator. And so everything is seen in a new light. Here's the third step for Eve, verses 6 and 7. 
he breaks the command. But that's the third step. It's been a lot happened before this. You can see the process that's gone up to this point. It's not just a matter of slipping up one day and accidentally picking the wrong fruit off the tree as Eve was wandering around. No, no. The narrator in Genesis 3 is saying that separation from God is not merely about slipping up. That's just the symptom. That's the tip of the iceberg. No, it starts with this question of God's motives. Does he really want the best for me? And then it follows with, well, why would he prohibit something that's good for me? Good and enjoyable and pleasurable. And, and then you get to that next step, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She takes the fruit and she eats it and she sees life and freedom where God saw death and alienation. And she gives some to her husband, Adam, and he eats it. Now, sin is so often when we, we talk about it and when we think about it, just reduced to the act. No, it's just lying or it's lust or it's greed or whatever it is. But Genesis is saying, well, those things are just the presenting symptoms. They're just the abdominal pain, just the back pain. That's all they are. No, it says sin was born in a mindset. And that mindset is that the creator of the universe does not have your good at heart. That's where sin is born. That he's holding something back from you. And that what he's holding back for you is not for your good. He's not protecting you. He's just doing it to control you. That's where sin starts. The act is just the end point. The problem began here in Genesis 3, it would say, with distance from God, that he does not want to good. And if your life is anything like mine, there'll be lots of differences, but I tell you what, there'll be lots of similarities as well. My life is riddled with habitual uh, behaviour that I try to get rid of and just keeps popping back up all the time, no matter how disciplined I am. And it points to the fact there is something much more fundamentally wrong in my life. Now, let's just keep going here because what we're seeing, the consequences of sin here are a little surprising. Uh, what was God's warning back in the uh, start of it? Verse ch- uh, chapter 2, verse 17. If you flick back there, you'd see, if you, fruit that, if you eat that fruit, you will die. That's what he says. Chapter 2, if you eat it, you'll die. Access to the tree of life, ongoing life, would be denied you. And access to the tree of knowledge was the other choice. You can choose tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. You choose... One will lead to life with God, one will lead to life outside of the garden. And you get to chapter 3 and they choose. They choose to be God, which means they can't have life that comes from God. And you've got to expect in chapter 3 that something dramatic happens. said you'll die. What what does that mean? Well, they're just going, that's the end of it? You know, finish him and it's done? No, it's not like that. They're pushed outside the garden. That doesn't happen. Chapter 3, verse 7. They eat the fruit and what they realise, they realise that they're naked. Again, what's going on here? Chapter 2, verse 25. Picture of a man and the wife in the presence of God. No clothes, no shame. Walking around, they didn't care. And now here in Genesis 3, in verse 7, they eat the fruit and they're trying to hide. They eat the fruit, they step into independence and verse, three, uh, verse 8, chapter 3, they realise they're naked. They're ashamed. They, they get these fig leaves and they try to cover up. And then God arrives in verse 10 and he calls out to them, where are you? And they say, well, I heard you, but, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
Now, what's happening here? What's happening in Genesis? What's, what, what are we supposed to read into this here? Well, at the very least, it's this. Adam and Eve have been embarrassed about something. Something's happening for them. Something has clicked. And it, it's more than just being aware of you know, bits that you don't want other people to see. Adam and Eve here are so acutely aware of their nakedness. They are so acutely aware of their flaws and their issues and their shortcomings, even where they don't exist. Even where they don't exist, even where it's just in their head, that they distance themselves from God. They hide from him. This is what shame does. That is what it does. It makes you pull back makes you draw away from relationships. Your defences go up. You would do anything you can to protect yourself with a nervousness that other people will find out what you are really like if they just knew that. You, and you read into comments that other people might say things that aren't there because you know what you're like and you think they might have cottoned onto that as well. Well, Adam even made them pull back from God and it's in that distance, in that space that everything in the world goes pear-shaped. Verse 11. Have you eaten from the tree? Verse 12. Adam says, what a man. The woman you put here made me do it. Really stepping up. She put it in my hand and she forced it into my mouth. Verse 13. Eve. Well, don't blame me. The serpent deceived me. He made me think. You didn't have my best interest at heart. You really just think this is just a comedy of errors, isn't it? Someone just needs to take responsibility for what's going on here. We have like five-year-olds in the garden running around. That's what it is. And creation starts to unravel that point. You keep reading through Genesis 3 here and you see, well, there's problems with creation. Verses 15, 16, 18, 19, creation starts to unravel. There's problems with each other in verse 16. They push God away. And they're pushed away from God in verses 22 to 24. And you keep reading Genesis 4 to 11 and you see a spiral of this happening again and again and again. Creation just unravels. And every single day, is my suspicion, every single day in your life and in this world when you turn on the news and when I sit in the quiet of my own room and I look at myself, I think this is what the problem is. This is where it began. This is what it is. Genesis 3 is saying it began with us pushing God away. Now, we're nearly there. There's hope. There is hope. But if you're reading this, when I, whenever I read this with my kids and whenever I read kids in general, they always ask the obvious question, which is the best question I reckon in this passage. That question is this. Why is it that God put the tree there. Why did he put the tree there? Why not just include it? If I go to a playgroup and I scatter razor blades around the playgroup, do I blame the kids for picking up the razor blades and cutting themselves? It seems like a structural flaw in the garden. Why not just leave it out? Why not just leave it out? Well, Look, this is a long and good question that you want to explore and one that Genesis 3 doesn't necessarily unpack in whole but one of the faculties that God has given mankind is this ability to choose. So he does stick them in the garden. He does say to them, look after it, tend for it, care for it. He doesn't tell them how. 
He doesn't tell them what to weed. There is this incredible freedom apart from this one tree. You get the picture in Genesis 3 that Adam and Hope, his, his hope is that they will live in there and enjoy the relationship with him in this garden in an ongoing way. But part of the creation is choice here. He gives them a moral capacity to choose. They can have life with God or they can have independence from him. He's not tempting them, he's not encouraging them, but he gives them a choice. Now, so often when we're reading this, it's such a good question, but you can get caught up in that question. Why did he put that tree there? And you get caught up in that question, and the thing you miss in that is this. Here is the thing you miss. There is a character that has stepped out of this story as you're reading it, just absconded at the first half. He's noticeably absent. So you ask in these first five, six verses, where is Adam? Where is Adam? Serpent turns up and he speaks to the woman. And he uses the plural, so you assume that it's not just the woman there, it's Adam kind of somewhere in the background listening to what's going on. He's silent though, doesn't say anything. And then when Eve eats the fruit, she doesn't have to go looking for Adam. She's not calling out to him. She just kind of eats and turns and hands it to him. He's obviously there. Adam is here with her. No, he's right there and he does nothing, completely passive. Now, back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God has given Adam a very specific command, a very specific command. He has given Adam the guard to guard the garden. That is the word, guarded. It's the same word at the end of this when Adam and Eve kicked out that the, the cherubim guard the entrance back into the garden. Adam is given that charge in chapter 2 to guard this garden, to stop what has happened here in Genesis 3 from ever happening. So we look at this and we blame God putting the tree there. But the person we need to be focusing on here is Adam because he was in charge. He was given responsibility. And when he saw this serpent and when he heard those first words out of that serpent's mouth, the first thing Adam should have done if he was doing what he was told to do in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, is pick up a spade and whack that snake. That's what he should have done. If it was Queensland, you pick up the pitchfork and you kill the cane toad. No mercy. My kids always say, just put it in a plastic bag and stick it in the freezer. There is no way a cane toad is going in my freezer. No way. Adam should have had no mercy here. He was meant to guard the garden. He was meant to guard his relationship with God that shaped and defined everything about creation. What you want to say here is not get rid of the tree. What you want to say here is protect the relationship. Stop that ability for this distance to build with God. Don't let something drive a wedge in there. See, what's needed in this story is a better protector, a better Adam. Someone who would have picked up that spade, smacked that serpent on the head and held true to that relationship with God. You follow, when you follow the arc of the story, this is right at the beginning, right at the end of the story, as you see history unfold here. The Apostle Paul writes a letter in the New Testament called Romans. 
And he picks up exactly this idea of a better protector in Romans 5. Paul says when he writes Romans in Romans 5, he says that the answer to the problem is not more discipline. The answer to the problem is two things. One, a restored relationship with God, the creator. And two, a better guardian, a better protector that will not let this happen again. So if you, you know, want to flick over, you can flick over to Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. If you don't, that's all right, I'm going to read it. This is what Paul says. He says, Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You can see the comparison here, can't you? The sin, this disruption of relationship, it entered the world through Adam, but God brought another Adam, a greater Adam. Not as an example, necessarily, but he is, but with the primary purpose of restoring that relationship with God. And the difference with this gift, with this guardian, he is so much better. He doesn't watch from a distance. He picks up the spade and he digs his own grave in order to bring people back to their creator. Romans says when he died, those who trust him die with him. When he rises again, those who trust him rise with him to a new and restored relationship with God which cannot be undone. Now we need to finish, so let me finish with this. Two things. Genesis 3 points us to, to the root causes of the symptoms that we see uh, in our lives, and our world, uh, that we have lost connection with our Creator. But the gospel, doesn't, the gospel says that we don't have to keep playing this endless round of whack-a-mole with the issues we keep sur- seeing surfaced in our life. Discipline will not fix those problems. Discipline is not bad, but it will not ultimately fix those problems. It says two things. One, the first is this. To those who might not be in a relationship with God, it says that the cure to the problems that we see in the world is not trying harder. At the heart of it, you need to be reconciled to God. That is the heart, because that is the problem. And God has done that by giving us someone who pays the debts for our sin in order for us to be right with God, back in the garden with the Creator, without blemish, without shame, without sin. No matter what we might tell ourselves, it is possible through what Jesus has done to stand in that place in shame. And while we may not know everything God is doing in the world, while it may sometimes seem hard to understand why the things that happen to us happen to us, why it is that God would say no to some things and allow other things, we do not doubt his motives anymore. He showed us exactly what he thinks of us. Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The first step the gospel says to dealing with the problems in our own lives and the problems with the world is not trying harder. It's not being more enlightened. The problems are not caused by some past life. Uh, The problems are caused by an irreconcilable distance between us and God that only God can bridge. 
Here's the second one. To those who would call themselves Christians, can I say God does not do distance education. God doesn't do distance education. That's just not the way he works. When he saves, he draws us back towards himself. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He, he doesn't do COVID safety. He doesn't do Zoom meetings. That's not how God works. God works on the heart and God works in the heart. And he knows what you're like and he knows what you have done. He knows what you will do. There are no surprises for him and he is absolutely committed to dealing with the problems in your life but it starts with him working in your heart. That's where it starts. He doesn't do it from a distance. Now, that is a very, very nerve-wracking thought. It is incredibly hard to be vulnerable with people. God already knows what you like, though. He already knows what you like. Don't pull back. He longs to draw near. He has plans for us good for you this is how Paul finishes we'll finish in Romans chapter 5 Paul says those who know God what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ if we go away with nothing else here is what he says if while we were enemies of God we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life let me pray Father, we don't have to look far in our own lives and in the world to see brokenness and hurt and pain. Um, and we know that we put up the shutters. We know that we keep people out. We know we present to the world a face that is different to the one that you know. And yet, Father, in this distance, we know that the cause of it as well is distance from our Creator. Father, we give you thanks that you have sent the Lord Jesus to bridge that gap that through his life and his death and his resurrection we can once more be reconciled to you. That in that life and death and resurrection, in the Lord Jesus, that can be never taken away. That, Father, we pray that our lives would be shaped not by doing distance education with you, but by drawing near, allowing you to work in our heart and changing us into the likeness of Christ evermore in ongoing years. Amen.